folks, and welcome back to another episode of The American Attic, where we deliver dialogue-driven explorations of California history and beyond. Presented by the Sacramento Historical Society and hosted by Eric Swigert, join us as we uncover topics that inspire imagination, inform action, and enrich the present. Our guest today is an artist. She is a sculptor. Her work has included both private pieces and public commissions appearing around the world. I'm particularly excited about our guest today as she is our first artist, one could say. And as any student of history knows, so much of exploring the past involves looking at art, looking at artwork from long dead artists. Um, A lot of times the textbooks in high school history classes are filled with the works of the likes of Botticelli, Michelangelo, Hemingway, Shakespeare, Picasso, Gaudi. However, with those artists, you're not able to have a dialogue with those artists about their art because they're not around anymore. You have a dialogue through them only through their artwork. And our guest today provides a vivid and in-living color example of a dialogue with a currently practicing artist, which is something that we on this show have not had the chance to do yet. And for that reason, we are very excited. Now, if you've been to Sacramento, California, if you've been to Kalamazoo, Michigan, or the International Museum of Ceramics in Northern Italy, there's a decent chance you've seen the work of our guest today. Her passion for ceramic sculpture and using clay to depict the past has included positions teaching overseas and at the San Francisco Art Institute, Chico State here in California, UC Berkeley, and Santa Clara University. In this episode, we dive in to the nuance of historical artwork, her current efforts featuring prominent Sacramento writer Joan Didion, inspiration and how one acquires it regularly and repeatedly, and a host of other topics relevant to using creativity when addressing the past. Please enjoy this engaging conversation with Lisa Reinertsen. Along with local exhibits... Lisa's work and career highlights can be found at lisareinertsen.com. And stay tuned for more updates from the Sacramento Historical Society on our collaboration with Lisa and the Sacramento Public Library in celebrating the life and legacy of Joan Didion through public art. And I am here with Lisa. I might need some help pronouncing your last name. Is it Reinertsen? That's correct. Lisa Reinertsen, uh, artist, sculptor, who has been working with the Sacramento Historical Society. And before we go any further, Lisa, just thank you for taking the time out of a a busy season, it sounds like, and connecting with us uh, to talk a little bit about you and what you're doing. Yeah, no no problem. Thank you for inviting me. Of course. So so many directions we can we can take this on on this podcast we really like to connect with people who are operating in either close or distant proximity to historical subjects and historical topics which of course you are 
But before we dive into some of the current events that you're working on, I did want to take a look a little bit about your your past career, past projects. We don't have a lot of, in fact, you might be the first, uh, what I would describe as an artist that we've had on the show before, which is kind of exciting. We don't have a lot of artists come through here. So um, before we get to kind of your current projects, I figured we could talk about your origin story a little bit and and maybe start off with how Lisa, how you got involved with um, creative projects to begin with. Was this something that that you knew you had to be your whole life? Was it something you kind of stumbled upon? How, how'd that work? Well, I would say that even as a child, I found myself very intrigued by art. Um, and I was lucky to have some exposure to art. I think that makes a huge difference. Um, I grew up in Sacramento and um, you know, the Crocker Art Museum was there, and my mom was great about taking us kids to see art, you know, both in Sacramento and over in San Francisco at the SF MoMA. Mm-hmm. Um, but we also, you know, sort of an obscure thing that we, my parents happened to get a stack of books of art prints at a garage sale. Mm-hmm. And um, so when the rest of my family was reading all the time, um, I loved looking through these, and especially I think the um, impressionist, post-impressionist period artists, and um, really sort of imagined being one of those artists and immersed in that world. Yeah. Um, so, just yeah. quick, quick question on that: How old were you? Would you say when you stumbled upon those uh, uh, those p- particular pieces? Oh boy, I don't know. I remember them as far back as I can remember. Oh wow! Wow. <laughs> Yeah. That's exciting. So, yeah. And I didn't know that that necessarily meant I had any concept of a career as an artist. I think I just, I love to draw. Um, I would draw my animals, you know, our dogs, cats, my family members. Um, so I was specifically always interested in drawing, uh, yeah, people and animals, um, less so landscapes, that sort of thing. Um mm-hmm. So, yeah, so in a fairly early age, I took a, a pottery class when I was about 13. Um, I had great um, art teachers, both at junior high and high school. Um, you know, Sutter Junior High didn't like the school, but I liked the art teachers nice. <laughs> back then. Um, you know, they gave interesting assignments and brought in contemporary ideas and art for us to explore. Um you know, back in the 60s, you know, we did things like pop art exercises and op art, you know, so, um, so my, my exposure to art was very broad. Yeah. And what, so for those not, for those uninitiated, what is, what is pop art? What is op art? What are those? Ah, okay. Well, in the 60s, you know, Andy Warhol started doing the, uh, cans of tomato soup and sort of pop art sort of bringing objects from popular culture into the world of fine art and some of some of it was just because those artists did commercial art for a living and so they brought some of those techniques into their fine art and you know i mean the whole history of modern art um broke open all possibilities of what art can be so yeah op art people don't talk about so much anymore but it was really playing around with optical illusions um, okay that you would do with geometric patterns and things in art Okay. Yeah, I could definitely see that as being 
fertile ground for a a young mind to be interested in, you know, either household objects or optical illusions, especially. I feel like if, you know, that, that could be something very interesting to a young, young person growing up, get, you know, encountering the field for the first time or. Yeah. But I will say, um, as you're having me go down memory lane here, um, Uh that some of the most impactful experiences I think I had, um, were when I was a teenager, um, one was the Van Gogh exhibition came to San Francisco and mm-hmm. um, the, I'm not sure whether it was the De Young or the MoMA. Um, and I'd already, I'd always loved Van Gogh's work, but I'd never seen it in person. And it was a major show and it was just completely moving to me. I mean, I could stand in front of his paintings and, um, really imagine him being there with, you know, making those brush strokes and mm-hmm. um, really understanding that he, you know, I'm standing in front of something he also stood in front of and created. Yeah. Um, so anyway, his, that really was amazing for me. And then I had an opportunity to go to Mexico mm-hmm. and um, in Guadalajara and see some of the work of the Mexican muralists. That was a huge impact on me because um, well, my family, we'll get into this maybe later, but my family was very involved in a lot of social activism and the peace movement and civil rights movement, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And I hadn't, you know, back in the 60s, there there weren't the murals around that there are now here. Um, so seeing these very political, um, social political murals in Mexico were just amazing to me. Um, so that will that that impacted my work later. Also, I got to go to Italy, uh, to Florence, and see work of the Italian Renaissance sculptors, yeah. especially Michelangelo. Um, which even to this day, if I go back, it blows my mind what you know his brilliance and his humanity and his technical ability um, all combined still are incredibly inspiring to me. So so. Those two, the Mexican muralist work and seeing the Italian Renaissance work, helped me to ignore people that said I had to do whatever was the popular thing to be doing in the 70s and 80s and 90s. Yeah. <laughs> like I saw really powerful art that was timeless that I identified with. Yeah. I'm glad you brought up your travels too, because that's that was something I did want to did want to bring up uh, a little bit later on about you know what that. The impact that had on your on your career and your just approach to creativity. Mm-hmm. Um, any other? So you mentioned Michelangelo. You mentioned Andy Warhol, Van Gogh. Any other creative minds or artists, uh, either living or in the past, that really kind of left an impression on you in the in the early years? Well, I'm not sure. You know, when you say early years, I. I will say that I also grew up in an era um, of this great ceramics movement that happened mm-hmm. in the Sacramento, Davis, Berkeley area. Um, there was the candy store gallery that was this funny little house um, up in the town of Folsom that mm-hmm. this woman, um, Adeliza, turned into an art gallery. And she started bringing all these artists that did what's now called funk art so she brought in, you know, Robert Ann Arneson and David Gohuli, who did um, very humorous, colorful ceramic work. Um, 
uh, Maya Peebles was a, and Roy DeForest did paintings that were in that same kind of humorous, colorful, funky mode. So I started going up there and seeing that work and working with clay. Um, and even though my work didn't end up having that same level of funky humor, I loved that work and it was really inspiring for me, I think, to go in the direction of working more with clay. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of my teachers, I don't know how far forward you want to go, but um, Ruth Ripon taught ceramics, ran the program at Sac State. Okay. I was really lucky to take her classes. Um, she was very rigorous. She was and and really warm, funny, sweet person. Um, yeah. What does um, what does rigor in an art class look like? In her class? Yeah, in her oh, class or or oh, art class oh, period. Man. I, I yeah. I've never I've taken very few art classes so. <laughs> Uh, well, in her class, um, you know, even though I'd done a lot of pottery in high school and such, um, you had to be able to throw 10 10-inch cylinders uh-huh. with perfectly even thin walls, cut them in half to prove that you have done that before you could make any other form or shape or uh, you couldn't make a bowl, you couldn't make, you know, nothing else. So, and wow. it was, and it really made a difference because you go from just kind of messing around, oh, I can kind of make this look like something, or isn't that cool? It's sort of symmetrical. Yeah. To, okay, you've got this perfection of your technique down, and now you can really take off from there. Um, so, that's just an example. Um, sure. You know, I, I taught ceramics and figure sculpture for years myself, and, um, I take, you know, I took it really seriously as, as an artist. So I would let my students know right off the bat <clears throat> that I have high expectations, expect them to really, you know, bring their their creative minds and problem solving to to the class. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of different levels of, of what that means. But, um, but I think yeah, it's it's a different kind of rigor than memorize all this stuff and give it back to me that you might get in some other class. <laughs> well, no, that's that because my background's history. You know, I, I got my uh, undergraduate degree in history, and that was a lot of that. You know, memorize yeah. dates, figures. I remember I had a professor who would penalize us heavily if we wrote in the passive voice versus the active voice, and that was oh, okay. I learned that very quickly. But what you mentioned, that's a whole nother level where it sounded like you could not graduate to other forms until you mastered just the, was it the disc you said that had to be the oh, like depth? A, a, um, a vessel form. Uh, okay. So okay. It would be a 10 inch tall cir- circular cylinder okay. form. Um, you know, that, that was the technical side of it. And, and the technical is important, but um, also I think um, when I was at Davis, I took uh, ceramics from Robert Arneson, who's pretty famous guy. And, there was more of a pressure of an intellectual rigor. And, you know, this was some years later uh-huh. um, and conceptual rigor to the work. And you were really challenged, um, you know, I guess I want to say think, you know, pretty deeply and honestly about what you were doing and kind of dig into what's important to you to create. So that's a different kind of rigor. But I will say that creative problem solving, I think, as as somebody who was teaching art, is something I thought was so important for my students, no matter what their major was. Because yeah. I think, you know, there's, there's a cut, there's, there is the education where you're learning a lot of facts. And, um, 
But when you're out in the world, I think people who can really, you know, make a difference in whatever job they do can bring their own creative problem solving to whatever they're doing. So, yeah. uh, and then I think art really is a place to have the freedom to do that. Yeah. Th thinking outside the proverbial box, as it were. Yeah, right. right. Um, awesome. That's, yeah, this is something, creativity, the world of art, it's something that I've, um, uh, it's always fascinated me. So I appreciate some of those thoughts and just the, the different ways that people can approach it. Um, and speaking of approaches to art, I, I did want to ask, um, and correct me if I'm wrong. Um, so you mentioned Italy. I also read somewhere that your your career has included travels to uh, Rwanda, Guam. I, am I correct in those? Am I missing any any other overseas travels that you've done as an artist? Well, you know, those two are definitely there. Italy, well, I came back to Italy later to teach workshops um, in recent years, which has mm -hmm. been really wonderful. The, the Guam... Uh, I was working on, uh, there's a foundry in Berkeley, Artworks Foundry, mm -hmm. that I've been working with since the first piece I cast in bronze in 1989. And um, let's see, I'm trying to think the year. Um, it was, let's see, anniversary of the end of World War II. There were a lot of sort of war memorial pieces that were being commissioned by different artists and places. And um, Guam... Basically, there were some war memorials being commissioned by other artists, but the governor of Guam wanted um, a work, artwork that would commemorate what the indigenous people of the island endured at the end of World War II. So it was for the Chamorro people of Guam. Um, the governor of Guam was Chamorro himself. So the foundry contacted me and asked me, would I be willing to do this piece? So I had to do a lot of homework um, because I wasn't familiar with the, the whole story very well, you know, I, and I wanted to be really thoughtful. I try to only do things that I feel that I'm, how do I put this, um, that settles properly with my conscience, sure. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, and um, so I really need, so I went out to Guam and uh, talked to the governor of Guam and to, we, we actually went to the university there and talked to the historian and just um, got a lot of information. Um, so the piece, I, en I ended up accepting the project and um, it's the largest sculpture I ever did. It's nine feet tall by wow. 14 feet long. And um, if anyone's seen the Chavez piece I did in Sacramento, it's similar in that I have a figure, but I also have images in what's called bas relief, a little bit more two dimensional on the mm -hmm. surface. And um, it depicts the march to uh, in Menen, Menenguan, if I'm saying it correct, Menengan. Um Anyway, the Chamorro peace people were marched, uh, a forced march uh, at the oh. end of World War II, um, and under really terrible circumstances. And, um, and uh, this, this was under Japanese occupation, I'm assuming? Right, okay. Right, okay. Yeah. Which was interesting because, you know, by the time I was doing this, a lot of, you know, Japanese tourists go to Guam and, and I didn't, it was a kind of odd, you know, basically I saw it as more of a peace memorial and a reminder mm -hmm. of what war, how it impacts people. Yeah. Um, so, so that was my Guam experience. And then um, Rwanda was interesting because... I did a whole series of pieces um, 
for an exhibition called Edge of Extinction that happened at the Pence Gallery in Davis mm-hmm. some years back. And I've always, I mean, if you you know look at my work on my website, you'll see that I've been working with images of human-animal interaction and relationships in a lot of different ways, kind of or a lot of different meanings. But um, so it was kind of a continuation of that, but with a little more awareness of the threat to of extinction to so many animal species on our planet. And as part of that exhibition, I did a piece of a, a mother gorilla and baby gorilla. And um, I ended up have, finding out that at UC Davis, is, um, the gorilla doctors program is housed there or yeah. their office is there. And um, they're the veterinarians that work with the gorillas in Rwanda. Um, so when Diane Fossey, before she died, she said, what we really need are veterinarians out here. Um, a lot of the problems are just traps that get on their wrists of the you know young gorillas, and they get infections and die, and, um, yeah. and also poaching. And you know, that's a different thing to monitor the poaching, but the uh, which they do now but um anyway i the head of the gorilla doctors the director came and spoke during my you know we we did a joint uh talk at the uh show and i got to know her and i ended up gifting my gorilla sculpture to their organization um so but over all these years she kept telling me lisa you have to go to rwanda Mm -hmm where you can go trek in and, and where the gorillas are. And I kept thinking, no, that's decadent. No, I don't need yeah. to do that. You know, I went to the zoo to do my, you know, um, there was actually a baby gorilla at the San Francisco Zoo um, while I was working on the project, which was uh-huh. great. Um, but the night of the unveiling in Davis, um, she took us out to dinner and there was a couple that had been Diane Fossey's um, assistants back, her first assistants ever, like, I don't know, in the 60s or 70s. Wow. yeah. And there were all these people who'd been working in Rwanda. There was about only eight or ten of us at the table. But after that evening, I went home that morning, and I thought, if I don't, I'm either going to book this eco-tour trip mm-hmm. today, or I'll never do it. And, yeah. Uh, and I anyway, and it was amazing. Um, so I also got to go to Kenya and um, see all the amazing wildlife there. And then wow. did the trek into the Virunga mount- mountains. Um, and, you know, you're within 20 feet of these gorillas. Just oh, it's, how, it's amazing. How, how did that feel being in such close proximity? Not in a zoo, you know, in there. It, on their turf, on their territory. Right. Well, I I have to say that whole trip, I put my trust in the <clears throat> people that were our guides. Sure. <laughs> um, you know, they were guys. These gorillas uh, were have been habituated to human contact. Okay. Um, there's the scouts that go out first and find them, and then tell the guides where to come. Um, so they didn't even know each day where to go, uh, yeah. you, know, you know, so you don't know if you're going to trek for a mile or for, you know, all day long. Um, luckily, it was it was not an easy trek, but it was um, doable. Yeah, it was amazing. I mean, I, it was completely magical. And I just but I as I said, I just they say, do whatever these guys tell you to do. You know, you have to do these 
funny grunting sounds uh, to calm the gorillas. If uh-huh. um, if they come near you, you know, get out of their way. Yeah. <laughs> they will, sometimes the young ones will actually grab. They, one of them grabbed this guy that was standing right next to me and pulled him down to the ground wow. because he didn't get out of their way. But he wanted, you know. He was yeah. asking. He was asking for it. <laughs> anyway, no, it was um, kind of unbelievably amazing experience. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's and that's something that I I wanted to touch on too. You know, obviously, it sounded like when you went to Mexico and you encountered the the legacy of the murals down there and some of those mm-hmm. artists that that left a. Uh, a, a mark, but are there any other experiences like maybe this, this um, interaction with the uh, gorillas or any other experiences for your travels that you would say maybe shaped your view of the world, which, I, which maybe shaped your approach to art, anything like that, that happened. You know, I know a lot of uh, artists t- can, can, can get a lot of um, inspiration from seemingly routine experiences, you know, seeing, you know, a person cross the street, the way they cross the street, or, um, you know, going to a new, being in a new city, what, whatever it was, there anything like that during your travels that you had, which was based on the location and not necessarily, um, based on an artist, if that makes sense, if that question. Right. Um, you know, I, as I was listening to your question, you know, there wasn't something specific in terms of travels that came to mind, um, you know, other than the art museums that, um, you know, I've been to Paris and been to the Louvre. And I mean, I've just, you know, all the art I've seen has been incredibly um, inspiring. I mean, sometimes it's inspiring because you decide you don't like it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, this, I don't like this. This doesn't yeah. move me and this does move me. And it's it, pretty, you know, personal. In, inspires you in a different direction. <laughs> right. Yeah. But I, what actually came to mind, and this didn't have to do with travel, so I don't know if this is the answer you want to hear. But oh, um, I also have done um, work related to um, – mother-child relationship mm-hmm. and um so when i went back to college to davis i went back as a you know young very young divorced single mom and um so i was sort of living this life of juggling being you know college student and mom and living in student family housing in davis and i just remember one time you know looking out my apartment window and watching this mom walking quickly with a tr- a crying toddler in her arms and um and i and just there was something that resonated with me about that about you know because at the time making mother child imagery you know in the early 80s was not considered cool at all and i was completely aware of that um you know what was cool was going to be stuff that had more shock value and you know, but yeah. but I was living that experience, and I thought, you know, there's something not, and I was told it was sentimental, you know, that sentimental yeah. mother child stuff, and I thought, oh, this, you know, it seems really a primal aspect of life, and I don't see it as sentimental because I'm trying to do, the, you know, yeah. living this, and yeah. when I saw this mother and uh, child walking, I I saw this amazing, you know, there's this connection and love, and at the same time. The crying child pulling away, and the you know frustrated mom, um, mm-hmm. and so I did a sculpture of that exact thing where the child is both pulling back and hanging on, the mom's holding and kind of pulling back, and um, 
So that was more in reaction to you talking about just things that you observe yeah. in the world impacting you, but it wasn't a travel. It was right here at home. Uh, no, no, but it's, <laughs> so, it's fascinating. Nonetheless, you know, where specifically wh when inspiration can strike you, I'm, I'm paraphrasing. It might be Stephen King or somebody who said, um, and I'm paraphrasing here, but they say, you know, inspiration is, uh, you know, it's like sitting in a duck blind and then the duck flies over and, you know, that's your one opportunity if you're a hunter, of course, which I know that you're not, <laughs> but, but, you know, um, you know, or another example, I think Jack London had a very aggressive quote about where, where artists get inspiration from specifically him as a writer. And what strikes me from those examples and, and others are just, it can happen when you least expect it. It's oh yeah. Yes. And that, that amazes yeah, me. I do think, yeah, I mean, underlying a lot of my work um, are, are definitely um, probably things that upset me in the world mm -hmm. that I want to address in some way. And often it's in a positive way, um, but I don't want to have to argue about it with other people. I don't want to have to get into a verbal you know, lose an argument. A I just Facebook want discussion. <laughs> I, I want to be able to put out how it seems to me or how it feels to me. I would say that when I went, I was about 16, I think, when I went to Guadalajara. And that was, again, we didn't have the homeless people the way we do here now um, yeah. when I went there. Um, I mean, they were definitely living in downtown Sacramento, a lot of the older men that we, you know, I, I you know, in, in retrospect, the words, you know, that we called people were probably not very politically correct. But, um, yeah. you know, and they weren't even necessarily homeless men. They were just kind of living in old hotels and had alcoholism problems and stuff. But so that existed in downtown Sacramento for sure. But when I went to Mexico and I saw the children that were really, you know, in, in poverty. And I remember a pregnant woman with a toddler begging on the streets and... Um, you know, that kind of, um, you know, w witnessing that kind of suffering, I think, um, impacted me in ways. And I'm not sure exactly how it came out in my art, but I think, and, you know, and I guess I will connect that also with definitely, you know, my family, you know, I, you know, my dad joined the march with Martin Luther King um, back in 74. 65 from Selma to Montgomery and then the Vietnam War was going on and my family was just really engaged in sort of anti-war um, movement and in um, the peace well I thought it was peace movement and civil rights yeah in a way that was just kind of constantly around us and um, so that had a big impact again, on me in a way that I could bring some of these feelings or issues into art that might touch people with empathy, with their hearts, without it being an argument about any specific thing, <laughs> you know. But, yeah. um, so that that was something else that definitely has had an impact on me as an artist. Yeah, no, well said. And that's, that's almost the... Um... Yeah. art can almost be a, a little bit secretive in that way. And that it, it's introducing things to you and doing it through the form of art, but it's things that you might never have been, you might never encounter otherwise, which is, I, yes. yeah. It's, it, and that, I feel like that can help. It happens a lot in the work that you do, but films, books, you know, a lot of these things. Um, right, right. Makes it such a. I often think that, 
you know, I would have been able to communicate a lot better if I'd been a filmmaker, but you know, that's a tough, <laughs> actually yeah. any art is a tough field to be in. I, yeah. I probably wouldn't have succeeded doing that, but often I'm sort of envious of, you know, how film can really um, move people. You know, yeah. It's, it's amazing. Well, I, I'm glad you're a sculptor. I've had a, I've had a chance to review some of the uh, some of the work on Joan Didion, and so I feel like we can we can head in that direction a little bit um, around some of the current current work that you're doing. But real quick, just before we did, I'd love to talk because I'd love to talk to you just a little bit about your approach to addressing a historical subject versus a a fictional subject. Let's say because yeah. um, I know you've you've done both in your background. And you mentioned this a, li- a little bit before, just about um, your process, the process of your work. And I wanted to ask, when addressing, you know, you, you mentioned the uh, piece in Guam, you mentioned Martin Luther King, Cesar Chavez, when addressing the, these um, historical subjects, historical figures, is right. there a specific process you follow, maybe um, and it doesn't have to be too concrete, but something that you pretty predictably do now that you've got a few of these um, pieces under your belt. Yeah, I, I don't know that I, you know, ever wrote down, wrote down a list, but yeah. um, I, I would say the first thing I do is I do as much research as possible. And I I love doing that. I, you know, if they wrote anything, I find it to and read it. So, the, for example, the first thing with Joan Didion was I did a crash course. I actually had not read her work, um, embarrassingly, but um, I just started, you know, getting, you know, as many books of hers as I can and yeah. getting some of the audiobooks. books. Uh, there was a documentary done about her life. There was another biography that was done, but I actually, I looked at the photo and, oh, and then I gather a lot, all the photos too, that I can. The other biography, I actually found just reading her own writing felt more important to me um, uh-huh. to get a sense of who she was and who, you know, I mean, that that's a pretty direct way to understand a person is if they're a writer, you know, this, uh, with Martin Luther King, he also wrote um, a lot. And so, and th- that was actually the first big public commission I ever got was to do Martin Luther King. And, um, and even though my family, you know, my dad had marched with him and I was immersed in, people talking about civil rights, I hadn't as an adult done all my own research. So um, again, I read, you know, the books he wrote, there was a documentary, that's always wonderful. Eyes on the Prize, a PBS documentary about civil rights. movement. Yeah, so and then, you know, before, it's easy to gather stuff on the internet. I mean, I've probably found pretty much anything about Joan Didion that, you know, well, I'm sure people who who are, like there's a current biographer who's working on writing about her. Sure. She and I have been in communication and she's finding some things that are more obscure that I wouldn't find as easily. But um, yeah, just, you know, okay. now it's easy with all the photographs. With Martin Luther King, um, there were, uh, you know, it's, it's almost like I forget, how did I find all those photographs? Yeah. But I did, and there's some books, uh, you know, books of photography about him. So that's the first thing I do is just really engage in trying to get as much visual reference and get as much um, idea because I'm trying to capture the spirit of a person. And no, no easy task. No, no. It's interesting because my daughter and um, son-in-law are both um, involved with theater 
and I'll talk to them about that because often that's the same job they do is um, trying to embody the spirit of a person in yeah. sometimes real, sometimes if it's a, you know, a play based on something historic or or it's a fictional character. But and also this biographer, um, she and I have been in communication, and she uh, we have the same task. We're trying to do a portrait of a person and um, yeah. capture the essence of a person. So after after doing all that homework. Um, then I do just I do lots of doodles along the way. So I did sketches of Joan from originally. I was asked. Um, I'm, I'm going off tangent here. Go for it. No, nope, <laughs> okay. that's what this is for. <laughs> okay. So when I was originally asked about this project, um, Maurice Reed mm-hmm. uh, contacted me, and I'd known him from previous involvement in Sacramento um, through the arts and political things in Sacramento. But he um, said he wanted to try to get the sculpture of Joan, a sculpture of Joan Didion done. And he had gone to, you know, they they all, he grew up in Sacramento and so did she, mm-hmm. but they went to UC Berkeley at the same time. And his roommate was Joan Didion's boyfriend at the time. And they all studied together at the Sacramento library. Um, and I guess they were all from Sacramento. Um, <laughs> Maurice Reed did as well. He was at the library yes. with, oh, okay. With Gideon. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, wow. And Bob Wiedner was um, her college boyfriend's name. Yeah. And he said, wouldn't it be great to, you know, come into the old, you know, to the reading room in the Sacramento library and Joan Didion will be sitting there at the table. Yeah. And so that was the beginning of, of the idea for this project. So in terms of the physicality, it was going to be her sitting in, at that table um, in the library. It's, it's kind of morphed from there because as I was doing sketches of her, I thought, you know, even though they sent me photos of her as a young college girl, um, I thought, well, no one will recognize her. She's, you know, very young <laughs> looking. Yeah. And um, I thought that, it made more sense to portray her at least of an age that she had, you know, been doing some writing and had become a known writer. Yeah. So I still did. I'm, I'm still sculpting her as a younger woman, but I'd say probably in her thirties. Yeah. Um, but, you know, so, so, so I was sticking with trying to present her a little bit on the younger side, but not, you know, sort of in her, prime of um becoming um, sure the writer that she became those are um yeah good good years to capture sometimes dynamic years the little bit that i know about about didion yeah. and, her, and her legacy right uh, um and I, and I, oh, i'm sorry you'd asked me about process um i guess i want to continue that through the drawings of her yeah and then um i you know, originally thinking with her sitting, you know, seated at the chair, I hired a model from Bay Area's model guild, tried to find somebody as close to her diminutive, you know, stature that she was very small um, and thin. And I had a model take a lot of different poses in the chair. And I sketched her in different poses. And um, I ended up, you know, deciding on a pose that um, felt sort of classically characterized kind of her Anyway, I, I if when you see the piece, you'll you'll see. But I can't um, wait. Yeah. So I, yeah, anyway, so I and so I do basically sort of brought in body doubles. Yeah. Uh, I ended up having um, 
couple different people posed at different times. Um, you know, even at the end, I needed someone to pose for getting her hand, you know, the details of her hands. Um, yeah. And um, so, so yeah, coming up with the overall composition and what is going to express um, how, you know, the pose that be- best expresses what I was after with the piece. Yeah. But it's tricky, <laughs> you know, some trial and error. Uh, yeah. And then you start building, getting that clay out. <laughs> and uh, that's well, as a I, whole other part of the process. As, as I noted before uh, we started recording on this call, that was my, my brief background in working with uh, working with clay in that creative fashion. That was my favorite part was the, you know, fashioning new designs, new shapes, um, getting the shape just right, just the way you want it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's something that I could set off to do a maybe a 15 minute project. And then three, three hours later, I'm still still trying to get it just right. Right. Well, I'm glad you I'm glad you talked a little bit about the Didion project because I, I wanted to touch on that too. And I also want to uh, be aware of time. And and you mentioned a little bit earlier that, and correct me if I'm wrong, but there was almost you you recognized maybe a little bit of yourself in her as an artist. Is that is that fair to say? And I also um was reading something similar in your uh in the correspondence you shared before uh this call with uh, the biographer. Uh, mm-hmm. Is that fair to say that you maybe saw a little bit of your yourself in in Joan the artist? Well, I think there were things that I related to. I, I first read uh, her novel Run River, which is set in Sacramento, and mm-hmm. so having grown up in Sacramento, also you know she writes about you know she's fifth generation you know wow. Californian and about her family coming out with the Donner Party, except that her family went north to Oregon and didn't suffer the story we we all wow. she's very aware of that story um yeah. and you know my grandfather on one side um you know homesteaded outside of yosemite and so there's a, a lot of things that she wrote about and as a californian as a uh, person growing up in sacramento uh although you know she grew up 20 starting 20 years earlier than i did but um you know, I resonated a lot with the place and some of the experiences you have identifying as a Californian, identifying as, um, you know, being from Sacramento. Uh, the rivers, you know, for me, my favorite part of growing up in Sacramento is I was very lucky. Um, my mom took us to the river all the time as kids. We'd sure. walk our dogs out there or she'd take us out on the weekends to, I think it was her way of staying sane. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Take the kids to the river. So and so a lot of what she wrote about was very familiar to me. There's even uh a character in her first novel that lived on the street I my family lived on, wow. you know. So I was like, Oh that yeah. you know, she's writing about the street I lived on. Um yeah. not that she wrote about very much in there, but um and yet there's ways that, you know, she's a very complex person. And the, the ways in which I felt very different, um, and I think partly because she was of a different generation, you know, I grew up with a very liberal, you know, p- political family. Sure. And she grew up with a very conservative political family. And so her early writings and her early observations came from a more conservative vantage point. Mm -hmm. Um, So some of her writings 
you know, rub me the wrong way, you know, at first when I was reading yeah. them, or I just didn't, it's like, I don't really relate to how she's viewing this. But I find it interesting that um, as she got older, and started being out in the world and observing what was going on, she actually, as the biographer mentioned to me, did a 180. Oh, wow. um, and, you know, really started seeing um, a lot of the Actually, I, I wrote. Let's see. I wrote some notes of some words here. Sure. Um, let's see. Okay. Well, I I wrote down that I think she's a keen observer, and I think that is something yeah. that as a visual artist I have to be. And uh, reading her, I mean, I love reading her writing. I think she's a brilliant writer, and I think that she's an incredibly keen observer who also brings her own self into the into the writing in a way that I think is really pulls the reader in also. And, um, and if, if we can, I, I want to yeah. touch on that real quick, because I'm sure yeah. that that's, that's something that, um, that maybe other, other creative folks can relate to. And, you know, do to what extent in your work, um, in your reading of Joan Didion, do, is that something that you've ever have, uh, had to kind of wrestle with or come to terms with is, is to what extent do I put myself as the artist in this piece um, to what to what extent am I just a observer presenting a a, a you know that that's something that I, I wonder other creative folks might wrestle with, especially with the subjects that you've covered. Is that something that you've had to wrestle with too during your career? You know, I don't think I've felt like I wrestle with it. Okay. <laughs> um, I I think that I take on projects that I find really interesting. I mean, in some ways, you know, as I was reading, I did wrestle a little bit with with Joan because, um, as I said, she's a really complex person, and I I really respect her and her viewpoints and her writing. And then there's something she's written that I didn't necessarily agree with, but yeah. um, but that's okay. I, I was going to note here that. Um, one of the things that I think is interesting about her is I, th- I think a undercurrent of of her writing is that she is an observer of um, I wrote these words the contradictions dichotomies hypocrisies yeah in both our own personal lives um, in her when she wrote about Sacramento um, I think she brought you know there's a lot of um, over time, you know, she had certain sort of heroic ideas about Sacramento and and um, and you know the pioneers and, um, yeah. and and over time, sort of recognized a lot of the contradictions or hypocrisies behind some of the things. And then she certainly started seeing that, like when she went to El Salvador, started seeing the U.S. involvement there and being confronted, you know, by a lot of the hypocrisies. Um, within the political system of our government. So, no, I think the only thing, and I think maybe she and I both, maybe the the answer would be more wrestle with trying to find the truth in a situation Mm. and be, because I can't, well, for example, with Martin Luther King, I, I was speaking for him. I was speaking for the movement. And I know back in those days, I didn't feel as pressured to feel like I didn't have a right to do that as a white person. You know, there's a different awareness of that now that I need, you know, I have to take a look at. Um, yeah. 
But at the time, I guess because my experience with the civil rights movement was actually a pretty diverse group of people I was around that was involved. Um, But I, you know, he's somebody that I honored so much that my trying to express what I thought were the, and honestly, you know, if you look at online and, and see that piece, I did a sculpt, you know, the sculpture is of Martin Luther King. I was able to put him in a minister's robe that became a canvas to really depict the history of the civil rights movement during his lifetime. So I worked from historical photographs. I worked, um, you know, so I was trying to express historical facts, um, but ones that pertain to um, the movement and the history and the bravery and yeah. you know, all of the real essential elements that, that made that movement what it was. Um, so it wasn't so much wrestling with, I, I don't think I ever I try to I, I speak anything that I don't believe in. Yeah. Um, but I, if it's a historic piece, it's a combination of trying to honor you know, what I see as the importance yeah. in that history. And, and I wonder if, if the, um, the absence of wrestling might be connected to what you mentioned earlier about your, there's a little bit of vetting. It sounds like that happens when you take on a project, you know, how does that project resonate with, with Lisa, you know, and it, and it sounds yeah. like, it sounds like that might be why you don't, you don't have to go through that wrestling step is, you know, you, you're able to be a little bit selective. It sounds like. Absolutely. But, um, I was just going to say it's, um, you know, you, you, it's good as an artist to have a sense of self, you know, and to have a sense of the projects that you'll take on the projects you won't, um, as a consumer of art, albeit a fairly unsophisticated one, I feel like you can tell the art that resonated with the artist and the art that was maybe more commercial or more, more distant from the artist's, um, personal interests, personal feelings, views, I feel like as, you know, consumers of art, you know, sometimes folks can tell which ones really hit home with an artist and which ones were kind of, you know, right. something else maybe. Well, I will say that how I avoided this in my life was that I became a art professor. <laughs> and that is one of the things I saw when I was continuing my arts education uh-huh. was I saw that um, my professors were able to do their own creative work that did not have to be commercial because they earned a living as art professors. And so that's really what I saw as a way, you know, to, um, and and I do love, I also love teaching. So, um, but, but by doing that, um, you know, and then you've, you've always, you're always juggling time too. But for example, when the Guam project came up, I was teaching full time and I said, well, I don't know the story of this, and I'm not sure, and I'm busy teaching, and I can't take the time. And yeah. um, and then it was after going to Guam and, you know, you know, having people talk to me about it that um, I understood what I could do with that and that what would be meaningful. Um, and I ended up taking a semester off, actually, yeah. to be able to do it. So I've never seen myself as a commercial artist. I've only done public art that um, – Anyway, I, I have ended up in the, you know, I, I taught full time for quite a while, but then in 
most of the recent years, I've been you know, part-time teaching here and there, and then um, part-time doing the public art, just sort of as it, as it, and then doing my own work for galleries. Yeah. So I've been lucky to um, not have to go the route of being solely a commercial commercial sculptor. Yeah, yeah, that's that seems like if I was an artist, I would I feel like I would like to say the same thing. You know, be able to be able to say the same thing. So I know that we are approaching the hour mark, and I want to be aware of that. But I, I had some, some maybe some more lighter, lighter questions. Some might be able to say that I, I was curious uh, to get your your response to. And you've talked a lot about process so far, and about you know, especially when we're taking on a sculpture project. What you know, there's the sketching stage, there's the um, uh, working with models stage, depending on the project. And I, I was curious, you know, could you walk us through what a like a typical day looks like? Maybe, maybe when you've got the sketches done, you've got the mo- you know, you're the modeling phase is over, and it's just it's just you doing your thing. What is what does that look like? You know, most I would assume most of our listeners are unfamiliar with the life of a working artist. So what 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 does that look like when you got a project in front of you? Well, one of the lovely things is that. Every day is a little different. So that's a nice thing about being an artist. Um, my studio is downstairs at my house. Uh-huh. So I um, I get myself downstairs. <laughs> and yeah. um, you did ask uh, earlier, not in this, anyway, about music. Um, if, I, if I'm at a place where I need to really concentrate and problem solve, I keep it quiet. Um, if I know I'm just going to be right getting into the clay and I know what I'm going after um I usually have music in my studio Um, and I will say I have um nice skylights in my studio so I you know kind of find the best daylight as I start working if I'm really into the sculpting phase um there's literally picking up a 25 pound bag of clay and taking it over to my wedging table and, you know, it depends on what I'm doing. Like I had to build this chair for this project. So literally throwing slabs of clay on the floor um, or often, mostly I'm a coil builder. When you work with ceramics, the work is hollow because um, you have to be able to fire it in the kiln and it you know can only be so thick or yeah. it'll blow up. Um, so mostly I build with big fat coils. So I'm rolling out coils and um, walking over to whatever phase I'm building on the sculpture. And I, you know, add the coils and the, the, if I, if I'm doing a bronze piece, I can build a steel armature and then just pack the clay on solid. Uh Um, It's much easier because you can rough the entire sculpture out uh, really rough and go back into the details. With ceramic sculpture, um, which you know many people in this region have been doing for a lot of years now, there, I'm going to say there's probably a reason a lot of it looks funky, and that is, if you build from coils, you really you've got to build from the floor up. Yeah. So you know, imagining doing a life-size figure, <clears throat> and you have to start with feet. Yeah. <laughs> and go up, and it's like it's it's so I actually do oh. things like. I, yeah. I think I'm seeing this. Sorry, this whole time I've been trying to th- imagine where the coils were fitting in on this. Do you mean that 
when you're laying the clay down, it's going in like yes. a circular coil right. motion. Right. Okay. Right. So oh. let's say I'm doing a standing life-size figure. Yeah. Um, I will first, I'll probably do the foot solid. Yeah. Um, I actually usually put a dowel in there. So I open that up a little, but when I'm making the legs, I'm literally wrapping coils around and around okay form um and i rough out and and you can only do you know so much each day because the clay is wet you've got to let it stiffen a little bit yeah. to take the weight as you go up yeah. um so uh, there's a lot of thinking it out ahead of time in fact i usually draw whatever i'm doing life size on butcher paper on my wall so i can measure you know this because i my kiln is a certain size yeah um, so i have to work in sections that will fit my kiln too yeah um so sometimes i use that as a map of you know how how far up i'm going so yeah i'm literally coiling the clay up and wow. um, you know i've got my spray bottle and i score it with a fork and and you know there's just a lot of so i i generally you know get it pretty accurate as i'm going but yeah knowing that I'm going to come because once more of the form is there, yeah. um, then I'll go back and refine it. So sometimes I'll rough it out out of my head and then get somebody else to come back in and model. Like, you know, literally I have, I'm lucky I have daughters, um, grown daughters. So yeah. it's like, could you sit here so I can look at your kneecap? Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so I'll have to come back and refine things. Um, and let's see. So typical day, I just, well, um, yeah, I, I work with it. I get really dirty. <laughs> are you, uh, are you by yourself normally? Yes. Um, okay. you know, you asked about, you mentioned about animals. Um, most of my life I've had stu a studio dog or two. Okay. And for some reason in, well, the last dog that we had that passed away recently, um, we were building the studio when she was a puppy and she was afraid of it, the noises of building it. Oh, wow. So I had this dog that did was afraid of my studio. And, yeah. then, and now the dog we still have, he was taught by her that that's not a safe place. So, okay. and, and maybe it's for the best because they, their fur gets embedded with <laughs> and it's not really good to have it in the house. But um, yeah. So oh. yeah. Yeah. I've had a studio. My cat lived in my, studio for a while but um yeah so um, yeah, animals come and go but no it's mostly by myself unless i have a model coming in okay um when i'm having to, i have um you know the big work i do is pretty heavy so i have equipment i have like a chain hoist and a hydraulic lift um so i can do a lot of moving of stuff by myself yeah but um when i'm moving work for exhibitions and things um my husband usually helps me yeah. Um, you know, load stuff up in the trailer and he's good at tying knots. Um, yeah. <laughs> he's better than I am at tying yeah. knots. Um, so yeah, there's been times when I've had assistance. Usually it would be like a college student that might come and just, so you know, like for the Guam project, literally we had to build up walls yeah. of clay. Um, yeah. and when it comes to the final refining of the work, you know, that's always me. Yeah. Um, you mentioned music earlier. I did want to circle back around that. Any particular type of music? Uh, it sounded like you, music would accompany any work that you just kind of had to get done. Uh, less, less maybe focused, creative problem solving. I, th I think you said you mentioned you prefer silence in those situations. But any particular variety of music? Well, 
often I will literally, if I'm doing a historic type piece, I will try to bring in music that connects to that person in some ways. So I literally, um, you know, played some of the civil rights songs and things when um, I was doing Martin Luther King. Um, With Cesar Chavez, I remember over and over again playing, Joan Baez did this amazing album, Gracias a la Vida, um, Uh where... um, she, it's all in Spanish, and some of the songs that were done um, along with the United Farm Workers marches, like De Colores, would come up. Um, so, and with Joan, I was a little more confused. I know she interviewed uh, Jim Morrison. Uh, okay. Or she tried to. Yeah. <laughs> I know she grew, you know, she she was exposed to a lot of the same music, you know, in the 60s and 70s. Um, you know, so I had to do some sort of guessing, and, and in the end... So, so some of it is I'll listen to things I think will connect to what I'm working on. Mm-hmm. Um, but more often than not, I think I just try to find work or music that helps me with the mood I'm in. You know, if I need something mellow, I'll play something mellow. If I need something more energetic, yeah, I'll do that. But I'm definitely sort of a, I want to say child of the 60s, 70s. I listen to a lot of that. I also, I play guitar and I... Um, oh like listening to acoustic guitar of all all types, you know, everything from classical to flamenco to blues, that kind of stuff. Um, Yeah. So that's kind of my go-to just if I don't want lyrics, Mm -hmm. you know, just um, sort of acoustic, acoustic music. That's, yeah. I mean, music can sometimes be, um, like an unsung hero in the creative process, you know, and, and, and getting true. you in the right headspace or something. So. Um, Definitely. Yeah. I don't know if Joan liked all the music I played. I, I, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, that's, that's the nature of art, right? You know, it can, it can open for interpretation. Right. I did have something just popped into my mind that I wanted to, ask about and i think it's going to escape me unfortunately but if i remember it i'm going to come back it was about the pro oh yes so and i'm not i'm not saying this is maybe your experience but um sometimes when uh, i so i used to play rugby when i was in college and to get myself in the proper headspace this is maybe to some might be a strange uh habit or ritual but before every rugby game i would uh i would read a short passage from jack london's call of the wild that really did something. I don't know, hard to put into words what it did, but it got me into a headspace where I felt ready, ready for the match. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to ask for you, are there any sort of, you know, habits and maybe music plays, plays a similar role, but any sort of habits or rituals that you do related to your creative work um, to that maybe helps with the headspace, anything like that? Hmm. You know, I'm not a very disciplined person. <laughs> so okay. I, there's been times I practice yoga and uh-huh. uh, um, I haven't really wanted to do it online. So that sort of disappeared. Um, I drink coffee. <laughs> but, I, I, you know, I know what you're saying. There's, you know, I, I guess... It depends on the day. Probably one of the more helpful things is to take my dog for a walk in the morning. I live, got just a couple blocks from the water here in Benicia, so I can walk over to the state park or I can walk right down to the waterfront and um, 
that's probably not that I do it every every day, but I do think that that's a really good, you know, practice. My dog will tell me, "Come on, let's get out the yeah. door first thing in the morning," and um, and I think that helps to be out in the world and um, before I go into my studio because I, yeah. I honestly can be quite a hermit, um, you know, spending my my days in the studio. So I think kind of getting getting myself out into the world. Yeah. Is it, but it really, I'm, I guess I'm not that regular with anything because sometimes I will read inspiring things. Um, but I'm not, I'll go back to, I'm not very disciplined. <laughs> <laughs> well, you could, you could have fooled me with the work that you're doing right now with the historical society. Just had one more question. And then I think we can wrap, wrap up and, um, and if and if we need to table this question for another another discussion, that's totally fine because it might be a long one. Okay. Um, but for somebody who works in the sp- works in the space of public art, art that is is displayed uh, publicly, public commissions, mm-hmm. um, do you have any specific hopes or goals um, for that art as it's seen down the road? You know, if it's any any, um, I guess a di- another way to phrase that question is. How would you hope uh, the public art that you've done is viewed 20 years down the road, 30 years down the road, 50 even? Any any thoughts right. on that or any? Yeah, I know when I, I mean, I didn't go into art to be a public sculptor. You know, I went in being somebody who loved, you know, impressionist painting and, um, <laughs> you know, and I loved, had a passion for figure drawing and um uh, that morphed into figurative sculpture. So the first time I did a public artwork was the Martin Luther King at the law school at UC Davis. And um, and then because of the concept I brought to that, within um, a year or two, I was able to do a more, uh, I want to say sort of large-scale refined bronze based on that same idea. And, yeah. um, and I know really specifically um, I did have strong hopes of what that piece would do. Um, you know, I hoped that it would be, and I, and I guess I'm going to say the same about the Cesar Chavez piece in Sacramento, that I hoped it would be an inspiration. Um, I, I hope that with the narrative quality that I saw way back when I saw the Mexican muralist work, where, you know, I hope grandparents can tell their grandchildren what these stories are about, you know, there's their visual, it's very narrative, these, the public art that has the bas relief. So I, you know, it's keeping the stories alive. And, you know, for me, you know, Martin Luther King, I didn't want it to just be a bust of him. I didn't want it to be, you know, I thought about how he would want to be remembered. Um, The I have a dream speech, you know, remembered as Uh a, a drum major, you know, so I had him, you know, walking swiftly, um, I cared about the the look on his face, the kind of determination um, on his face, and um, and then with again with the narrative imagery and to the, you know I mean I've it's already been out there. So that that piece in Kalamazoo, Michigan, um, the bronze out in the park has been there since 1989, and I know already there's grandparents that have been telling their grandchildren what is this story about? In fact, the one I have at UC Davis, they put a big um, screen uh, on the wall uh-huh. and it has the images from the sculpture. Yeah. And then it has the 
photographic images from the times, from the newspapers that are related to it. And then it has a little paragraph description. Wow. And you can go up and you, you should go check it out. It's, <laughs> it's, at, yeah. it's at the law school at UC Davis. But um, so it really is a historic reminder. And yeah. um, and it's not just so much a reminder of facts, but a reminder of, you know, struggles for justice. And, yeah. um, and the inspiration of people who are nonviolent activists like Martin Luther King or Cesar Chavez, you know, sort of living in the philosophy of nonviolence that Gandhi taught. Yeah. And so, you know, I did, I guess I can go back and say, I haven't mentioned Gandhi, but you know, his philosophies of nonviolent activism have been huge in inspiring me and reading, you know, what he has written in his stories. And I know for a fact that, you know, Martin Luther King studied him and Cesar Chavez, um, I went down to La Paz to where the United Farm Workers headquarters had been. And I went to Cesar Chavez's old office before it's been all renovated. And he had in his bookshelf, you know, all of Gandhi's writings right there in his office. So yes, um, promoting that philosophy of nonviolent activism um, is something I do care about my work. um, Now, not all my work is about that's, so political work and yeah. definitely doing Joan Didion. It's, it's a different thing. Um, I think with this piece, you know, I love that she's from Sacramento, you know, she's, and that she um, went out into this world and did observe keenly her home, her state, her country, and tried to, she, she digs really deeply when you read her writings of trying to get at, what's really going on. Yeah. And, um, and I really love that about her writings. And I think um, she's an incredibly important writer representing as an American writer. Um, And so I just am happy to be able to have her, you know, in our hometown of Sacramento to have an, a reminder of this important Mm -hmm. writer that, and, and also, you know, a woman writer that is recognized, um, you know, not that many women are recognized in the same level as writers. And I think I love that I can do that as a, you know, the artwork becomes a reminder yeah. <laughs> and it does have a certain physical ongoing legacy. Uh, I also included some relief imagery that was more sort of about Sacramento, um, some symbolism in her work. So I wanted to get a little bit of sort of a taste of what she wrote about in the piece, it's very minor, but it's just a little bit of the vibe of her and and what she wrote about. Um, and again, I want people, to, you know, I want kids to ask, what? Why uh-huh. is that image here? Yeah. <laughs> you know, or even adults to ask, what does this image mean? Because I, you know, yeah, I included sure. a snake on the bottom of her chair, and almost everything I read of hers, she brings up the snake, um, yeah. <laughs> either literally or figuratively as sort of the the danger lurking in the background and um and it's such a common image um that I I needed to give her the the snake side of, of yeah. the piece so I don't know if that answered your question oh it, uh, above and beyond Lisa <laughs> okay. above and beyond um and I think also that that is a a great place to wrap up and just on behalf of the Sacramento Historical Society thank you for the the two words that I heard in the last 10 minutes was reminder, you know, uh, giving a reminder through the art and then telling a story through the art. And, mm-hmm. um, 
And I think that those two missions is how maybe perhaps we got connected. You got connected with a historical society. So thank you for the work you're doing because that's that's what we're all about. That's what we're all about and what we try to do. So yeah, thank you for that. And yeah. uh, well, you're welcome. And I'm appreciating the historical society's support in this project. Um, yeah, you know, it's it wouldn't be happening if there weren't other people involved in. Uh, and I this didn't get mentioned, but um, there's going to be a scholarship for Sacramento City College in Joan Didion's name. And I think that's a really fantastic part of what's happening with this project. Yes, we will be uh, shouting that from the rooftops, <laughs> I think a little bit. Um, yes. But yeah, thank you again, Lisa. Um, and with that, I Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Sacramento Historical Society's The American Attic. If you'd like to learn more about the Society and upcoming speaker series, please visit sachistoricalsociety.org. If you have ideas for topics and speakers we can engage, drop us a line at admin at sachistoricalsociety.org. See you next time.